1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Lord, again, we thank you for your living word. It's living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And we're thankful, Lord, that it um, prepares our hearts for all the things that lie before us. And even this morning, our hearts are prepared as we come to the Lord's table, communion time. Uh, we ask, Lord, that our time in the, in the Word of God will be uh, used by the Holy Spirit uh, to remind us again of the, uh, the beauty of Christ our Savior and the awesomeness of what he accomplished for us. And uh, we, we again ask that the Holy Spirit would have the uh, freedom to guide our thoughts and our hearts towards you to see again your awesomeness, <clears throat> your, your saving work on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, I think we would all, there's something we can all agree on. We're living in a world with a whole lot of disagreements. <laughs> Our country is woefully divided on so many issues, but I think there's something we all can agree on. You say, well, this better be good. <laughs> we can all agree that we like to hear good news. Amen. Yes, amen. And uh, the Bible is filled with good news. In fact, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ is called good news. Uh, look with me at 1 Corinthians 15:1. We're going to read down through verse Four. Moreover, brothers, I declare to you the gospel, the good news, which I preach to you, which also you have received, Corinthian believers receive this, in which they stand, they're standing spiritually, by which also you are saved, they're saved, they're on their way to heaven. If you hold fast that the, uh, the, the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, unless you really didn't believe, but I delivered to you, first of all, that which also I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, like Isaiah 53. And he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So here we have this um, very clear statement of what the gospel is. Now, you and I, pr probably almost all of us are here this morning, if not all of us, understand that a person, in order to... Uh, have forgiveness of sin and be sure of going to heaven, needs to know what the gospel is. And uh, we're living in a day when there's a lot of lack of clarity about what the gospel really is. In fact, there's a, sometimes the, the binding together of truth with regards to discipleship and, and the clear gospel of Jesus Christ. And a lot of times you'll hear people talking about going to heaven and it's almost related to a works type Salvation, where if you do this, rather than if you believe in Jesus, uh, you'll go to heaven. And the gospel is very clear that we have to believe in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. So uh, the good news is very clear in Scripture. And uh, recently we heard of the uh, homegoing of Billy Graham, who uh, for many years uh, preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was always very clear, wasn't he? That Christ died for our sins and was buried and rose again. And through our faith in Christ, uh, you receive the gift of salvation and eternal life. The gifts of salvation, as Bob refers to them. Uh, Billy Graham was greatly used of the Lord. And literally um, thousands and thousands of people turned to faith in Christ 
when he told them of their need for the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. He preached to millions of people over the years. So that's the, the good news. Now, you'll notice that the good news is very clear and can be stated very clearly. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. So when we think of what Christ did for us, we not only want to think of his death, but also, as we will put a focus coming Sundays, on the resurrection of Christ. But this morning, as we prepare our hearts to come to the table, we want to think of the significance of the death of Christ. And this truth regarding the death of Christ literally prepares our hearts for the time when we come together at the table and we say, you know, at this table we have the, uh, the bread and we have the fruit of the vine, we have the cup, and it looks back to, it does look ahead, but it looks back to the death of Christ on our behalf. And so we want to consider for a few minutes the uh, significance of the death of Christ. And when you think about it, you must think of the necessity of the death of Christ. Romans 5.12 says, For by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And uh, this, is, this is a clear text of Scripture. We have all sinned. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has ever been born has been born with the capacity to sin and does sin. And so, therefore, all people need Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible is very clear. The wages of sin is death. And the Bible talks about three kinds of deaths. Do you know what the three kinds are? First, the ones are very obvious to us, and that's physical death. Uh, the wages of sin is death. But when it refers to death in that verse, it is referring to spiritual death and eternal separation from God. So what are the three kinds? There's physical death, there's spiritual death, and there's eternal death. Well, Christ died in order that we might have our sins forgiven so that uh, we... When we die physically, we go into the presence of God. When we trust Christ as Savior, we are spiritually made alive, and spiritual death is not a part of our experience as believers. Jesus Christ had to die because of the uh, pervasiveness of the sin problem, and nothing short of his death can take care of sin. That's very important. We see people and we say, well, you know, they're nice people and they're good neighbors and but listen, people who don't have Christ don't have eternal life. And they're not ready for heaven. There's only one person who saves from sin, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm always amazed when I read John's Gospel, and it gives a reference to John the Baptist who saw Jesus Christ. And of course, John the Baptist had been taught by the Spirit of the Lord much concerning Christ. And he looked at Jesus one day and he said, Now there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who is it that deals with the sin of the world? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, again, when we're thinking about the uh, need for Christ's death, we think of the nature of Christ's death, and the point of this is clear in Scripture as well. Since sin is that which offends God and is breaking His laws and His will and His ways, only God's going to be able to make the antidote to sin. Uh, he's the one who will uh, establish the basis for forgiveness of sin. And we celebrate that when we come to the table. There's a verse in the book of Hebrews very clearly states, Hebrews 9.22, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Now when we partake of the cup together, we're going to think about the blood of Christ. 
You see, Jesus had to die on the cross, shed his blood, in order that we might have forgiveness of sin. The means by which God forgives sin is the shedding of blood. And all the Old Testament sacrifices, animal sacrifices, all looked ahead uh, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we say, sometimes we say, the death of Christ was a blood atonement or covering for sin. Jesus Christ offered himself and he died on the cross in order to pay for our sins. And I guess probably one of the clearest references uh, is this. In fact, when you're trying to communicate the truth of the gospel to someone, and uh, we've all experienced this, you know, it's not sinking in. They're not getting the picture <laughs> that Jesus literally had to die for us. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Christ, when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins so that we this morning, when we come to this table, we have that sense of knowing we've been forgiven. We have an awesome God. He forgives. And even after we become Christians, we know we still sin, but we know what God wants us to do. He wants us to confess our sins. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But never forget 1 Peter 2.24. On the cross he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Sometimes people ask the question, why did God use this means for dealing with man's sin? I, I have a reasoning uh, conclusion in relationship to the question. You perhaps have heard the verse in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, and cursed is everyone who does not keep the laws of God. In other words, we have broken God's laws. That's why we're called sinners in the Word of God. However, Jesus Christ went to the cross, and there he bore the curse of the broken law. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And that was a, uh, from the human standpoint, uh, actually, from the scripture standpoint, when Christ died on the cross, he died as one who was smitten by God, but for our sins, not his own. And we're going to see this again in just a few moments. So why the cross? Here's my line of reasoning. Let me ask you before I give the answer. Well, I don't know if it's the answer. It's my answer. Why the cross? Sometimes people will say, well, couldn't God have used a different system for dealing with man's sin, technically speaking, by technically speaking, I mean biblically speaking, no. He had to use the death of his son. Why did he use the cross? I believe he used the cross because people, when they hear the cross, will recognize that the Son of God bore the sins of the world when he died on the cross for us. Okay. Even today, you will see people who have no understanding of what the cross is all about, but they'll wear a cross. You see, God's system of dealing with man's sin is the cross where Jesus Christ died for us. And you and I know when Christ died on the cross, he cried out just before he died and said, It is finished. And that word, it is finished, means paid in full. The price for our sin, my sin, was paid for by Jesus on the cross. 
It is finished. It is complete. The payment for sin has been made. So therefore, as we um, prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, and we think about the fact that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree, it just makes us want to come to the table and say, Lord, we are so thankful that our eyes have been opened. I mean, people in false religions do all kinds of things to get rid of their sins, don't they? There are people in India who, who feel if they bathe in the Ganges River, the filthy river, that somehow or another their sins are going to be washed away. What a teaching. What a belief. No way. It's not going to happen. It's only through faith in the one who went to the cross for us. So interesting. I was reading this past week something also interesting, and that was the fact that there were a group of believers called Moravian Brethren who in the 1700s here in our country, and this is a group of people coming from some Lutheran backgrounds and uh, followers of Calvin and Zwingli and uh, some Anabaptist people who baptized uh, after they were christened as uh, babies. They realized that the Bible teaches water baptism for believers. Well, this group of individuals in the 1700s, when they came one Sunday to the Lord's table... They said, Lord, we need you to do a work in our hearts. Uh, we don't love one another in our community of believers like we should. You know, the Bible says, by the way, when we come to the table, we're to uh, examine ourselves, confess sin, and then eat the bread and drink the cup. So they said, Lord, we, we repent of divisions in our fellowship. And also, Lord, <laughs> uh, we, we want the um, pouring out of your spirit into our lives. Um, we want you to pardon us of our sins, and we want you to pour out your spirit upon us. When they came to the Lord's table in the 1700s, on one occasion, in fact, I have the date written down. It was August 13, 1727. And as a result of their coming to the table and the whole group of believers saying, you know, we need to be more united as, as um, followers of Jesus Christ. We don't just want to be saved. We want to be disciples of the Lord. We want to really follow him. So as a result of that, they started what was called a 24-hour prayer watch. You know how long that prayer watch went on? 100 years. 100 years. They kept praying for 24 hours. Very interesting. But also out of that, that decision made at the Lord's table on that date, August 13th, 1727, they also decided to reach out to people who didn't know Christ. And the motivation for their reaching out takes us to our passage in Isaiah 53. If you have a, a, the Bible on your phone or if you have a Bible at hand, turn to Isaiah 53, this beautiful chapter. We're going to talk about this in just a few moments, a little bit more. But you'll notice this group of people who said, Lord, we, re we want to have unity in our fellowship. We want to uh, have our sins taken care of by you. And we want to, Lord, as a result of what you have done for us, we want to reach others. So they sent out more than 100 missionaries over a period of 25 years. Now, what was the basis of their sending out missionaries? It was actually in 53, we didn't get down to read these verses, but watch it with me, 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, Christ, you see, he was smitten of the Father. He was bruised him. And he has put him to grief as he's bearing the 
pain of our sins, when you shall make his soul an offering for sin. Now here's a bright spot. He shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. We'll talk about this again. Pleasure of the Lord shall be in uh, pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And it's looking ahead to Jesus. And he shall see the travail or labor of his soul and be satisfied. So here's this group of people and they say, Lord, you suffered and you died for us. And we want you to be satisfied because of what you did for us. And we look in your word and we see the thing that brings you satisfaction is the fact of other people coming to know you as Lord and Savior. So they chose as their motto, their missionary battle cry it was called, to win for the Lamb of God that was slain the reward of his suffering. To win for the Lamb of God who was slain the reward of his suffering. In other words, you'll notice the text says, he shall see the travail or the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Here's the point again. As a result of his dying on the cross, he could look ahead and see that you and I would put our faith in Jesus. It's awesome. It's really awesome. And this motivated this group of believers to go out and reach others for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah 53 is a beautiful prophecy in Scripture. It's one of the clear prophecies that look 18, pardon me, 800 years ahead to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Isaiah 53 describes the suffering and death of, in the account, he's called the servant of the Lord. There's graphic detail of what happens to Christ 800 years before he's crucified on the cross. It describes the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Okay? Now, there, there's two ways to outline it. Uh, we're going to just mention one here. In verses 1 through 9, just let your eyes glance at the text. I believe the nation of Israel is speaking. It talks about our sins and our iniquities and things that we did. Israel speaks in 1 through 9 and says that the servant of the Lord was not recognized because of his humiliation. All right? Let me explain that. Jesus, when he came, was not recognized to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He wasn't recognized to be the promised one that came down from heaven because of his humiliation, because he took upon himself a body. I'll give you a reference in relationship in, in a minute. Secondly, God speaks in verses 10 through 12. And here we see the servant of the Lord will be exalted because of his humiliation. Now, what do we mean by his humiliation? We mean that God, the eternal Son of God, left the glories of heaven and came here to the earth and took upon himself flesh and blood in order that he might go to the cross for us. There are a number of references for this. I, I like the one in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, that he might taste death for everyone. So why did Jesus leave the glories of heaven and come down here to earth? He came down here in order to suffer and to die and pay the price for your sins and for my sins as well. Now let's just do a little glancing in this text before we come to the table. You'll notice it begins in verse 1. And I believe that this is the 
um, remnant of Jewish people who in the future look back and see that their Messiah was the true Savior. And so they ask the question and they say, Who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who really has believed our report? Well, the remnant of Israel, when they're saved, when Christ comes back again, they're looking back and they say, Wow, 2,000 years ago, let's use that time frame, the one who died on the cross died for us. You see? But who who really believes this? And and they're um, saddened by the fact that people do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as being the Messiah and the Savior. They're saddened by the fact that so few people will really believe the message that Christ came. You know, you and I, we kind of get saddened when we tell a relative or a friend or somebody at work that Jesus Christ is the Savior and they don't believe you. You know, one of the things that's hard on us emotionally is when people don't believe us. You know, especially when we know the real truth. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you say, wow. I've told somebody about the Lord, and I'm going to make this real clear. I've told people about the Lord more than once. Some people in my own neighborhood. And I'm not trying to be sarcastic at all. But they don't believe me. They don't believe when I say Jesus left heaven, came down here, and went to the cross to pay for my sins. I always say mine first, my sins and your sins. They just don't believe it. And, of course, this little phrase here in verse 1 looks ahead to even today when there are people who will not believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Uh, they see, say things like, oh, it's too easy just to believe in Jesus Christ. Or they'll say, it doesn't seem logical that this is how God would do something. Or they'll say things like, well, um, there's so many religions in the world, God wouldn't confine uh, going to heaven on the basis of believing in his son. And the answer is yes, he would. huh? Isn't that how we were saved? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other. Acts 4.12 For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So the people of Israel not only didn't believe in Christ, but you'll notice in verse 3 it says, they despised him. Did you see that? He's despised and rejected by men. And the worst of the worst in Israel in Jesus' day was the the leaders. It was the Jewish leaders. They they despised them. You remember some of you seeing that film entitled... um, God is not dead one. You remember that one? I think one of the most moving parts in that film was when that young man who's defending his faith, he turns and he looks at the professor and he says, Why do you hate God? Why do you hate God? I don't know. It's something in me just, you know, tightened up, I guess. Because the professor really did at that point. He hated God. And uh, he said, I want to know why. Well, let you in on a little secret. Many people who are atheists are atheists because they feel God hasn't done anything for them or even actually let them down in some time in the past. I've met at least one who told me, I finally got it out of them. Why is it you don't believe in God? Why do you despise the Lord? Because he allowed something here. <clears throat> 
It's no reason to despise the Lord. The Lord is in sovereign control. He sent his son to die on the cross for us. We love him because he first loved us. But you see, in Israel, he was despised and rejected. Uh, Very quickly, it says again in verse 2, it says, He shall grow up before him, that is the Lord in heaven, the Father in heaven, as a tender plant, as a little healthy plant. Um, Perhaps you've seen pictures of deserts, and you're, you're looking at all this dry area, and all of a sudden you see just a little plant, green plant, that comes out of the ground. Well, Jesus was the green plant. He was the one with life and the one who pleased the Father in heaven. Coming up out of the soil of dry Israel, because Israel in the day our Lord was on the earth was very dry spiritually. They had all kinds of worship. I'll never forget, I had a Sunday school teacher right here at LBC who said one time, you know, um, the people of Israel in Jesus' day, they had the temple. And they thought, boy, we got the temple, we have our formal worship, and we've got it. But they didn't have the heart for the Lord. They, oh, they had the temple. They had all the form, but they didn't have a heart for the Lord. Jesus Christ grew up. He came out of the, uh, the seed of David, but he came as a young plant, a healthy a son of God, where the Father in heaven would look at the Son and say concerning Jesus, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, 2B says, and he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus' appearance as a man did not in any way pull the Jewish people to himself. They they saw, I'm going to read that verse again. There, he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. As a man, the Lord Jesus in his manhood was a stumbling block to the Jews. They could not see the glory of the Lord. The interesting thing is, the Apostle John, when he wrote, he said, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, only true believers could see the glory of the Lord. And uh, how could they see the glory of the Lord? Well, they saw the glory of the Lord when they saw his genuine compassion for people. They saw the glory of the Lord when he performed his miracles. They saw the glory of the Lord in his matchless words and teaching. No one ever spoke like he did. If you and I were around when Jesus was on the earth, and our faith was in him, we would have said he's the awesome son of God. A lot of people um, misinterpret this passage and they said, well, he wasn't really attractive as a man or a person. Just forget it. Just push that stuff aside. Um, You know, Jesus was the perfect son of God. Um, Some of us have uh, broken fingers and he had no broken fingers or he didn't limp. He was the perfect man. But it didn't appeal to the people of Israel. The only ones who saw the beauty of Jesus and the glory of Jesus were true believers. And um, I believe if you and I had been there, uh, we would have seen the beauty of Christ. But uh, they sought to stone the Lord. And, and Jesus said to them, why, are you, why do you seek to stone me? And, and they responded back and they said, We are stoning you for blasphemy because you, being a man, are claiming to be God. And, of course, he was. He was the God-man. 
Christ Jesus. So beautiful. And so we sing a hymn like this one. Uh, my Lutheran church back east. The pastor um, didn't have a Don Willis to pick out songs. And so he would sometimes repeat his songs very often, his hymns. Like uh, the first of the month we'd sing this song, and then the last of the month we'd sing the same song. He didn't have a worship leader. But he loved the Lord, and he loved this song. It's called, He is so precious to me. Tis heaven below, my Redeemer to know, for he is so precious to me. And, of course, the Lord is very, very precious to us. There's a whole lot more in this chapter, and uh, we thank the Lord for uh, this passage in the Old Testament, one of the beautiful passages of Scripture that looks forward to the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord uh, came to the table with the disciples, he had the cup and the bread. And Jesus said, um, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And I want you to remember this when you come to the table this morning. The fact that we come under the blessings of the new covenant or the covenant which the Lord makes with those who put their faith and trust in him. The new covenant primarily was given to the people of Israel. You have the old Testament, the covenant, the old Testament law. You have the new covenant which is given by Christ, and there's three aspects to it. And I want you to think about these when we come to the table in just a moment or so. First one is this. It's in Jeremiah chapter 31. God says, I will put my law in their hearts. The second one, I will be their God. And the third one, I will remember your sins and iniquities no more. The new covenant. Now again, when you take the cup, Jesus looked at the disciples and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, Jesus said, I died. I shed my blood to pay for your sins. And the result of this, you're going to receive forgiveness of sins, number three. I'm going to be your God. You will have a relationship with me. You see, you and I, as we go through the week, and we, every once in a while it kind of strikes us that we know the Lord, but here's people who don't. We're saved and we're on our way to heaven. Here's people who don't know the Lord. We have a relationship with God. That's why we say Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So what did the Lord say in the new covenant? Number one, I'm going to put my law in your hearts. You will notice, you will notice the people who and I'm not trying to pinpoint anybody in relationship to this, but I want you to think about it. You will find the people who love the Lord also love the Word. You know why? The Lord says, when you come to me, you receive my forgiveness, I'm going to go in a covenant relationship with you and... I will put my law in your heart. And I, I can't tell you through the years <laughs> how many believers I've met who say, you know, I love the Word of God. I love to go to Bible study. We had a lady who called not too many weeks ago and said, I'm looking for a church where they open the Bible. I thought, man, that's neat. That really is. That's neat. But what was she thinking? Well, I'll tell you what she was thinking. She told me later. <laughs> She had been to some churches where they don't open the Bible. When you trust Christ as your Savior, 
the Lord puts his law in your heart and you develop a love for the word of God. And that's number one. When you hold that cup, you're, it's the cup of the new covenant. He said, I will put my law in your hearts. I will be your God. You and I have, as believers have a relationship with God. And lastly, he said, uh, I will forgive your sins. And we like to think of that primarily when we come to the table that the Lord Jesus died, shed his blood in order that we might have forgiveness of our sins. Let's go to the Lord's table. At this time we ask the elders to assist.